0: Uh, this evening for a short time to Matthew 16, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16 especially. But we can read from verse 13. Matthew 16 verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, as we've been following in the Gospels, the account we have of uh, Simon Peter, and how he is brought before us as a disciple of Jesus and the experiences that he went through and uh, the statements that he made. We've seen so far that uh, Peter is learning more and more of the Lord's relationship with himself and his relationship to him as we've seen him in the previous passages we've looked at. And uh, you can see from that how, uh, and we've seen from that, how aspects of discipleship comes th- come through so clearly as you look at uh, this life of Peter as it's brought before us in these passages and we've seen from the last uh, study we had in John chapter 6 where uh, Peter again said Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life we saw that discipleship is not simply an outward following of the Lord because many disciples as we read in that passage turned away from him at that point and walked no more with him they left him they did not come back to follow him And that's where Jesus turned to the twelve disciples, uh, of whom Peter was a a member, of course, of the twelve. Do you want to go away as well? Or more literally, you don't want to go away as well, do you? And that's when Peter came with this answer. So we've seen already that to be a disciple, yes, it's a follower of Christ, but it's much more than an outward following or a formal following that it actually takes in issues of the heart. To be a disciple, to be a follower of the Lord in the full senses, to have in your heart Jesus as your master, your Lord, your teacher, your savior. And it really fits in very much with the whole biblical emphasis on knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. That's very different to knowing things about him, knowing certain things in the Bible about him, even being able to gather a lot of the texts of the Bible that speak specifically about Jesus or about aspects of God's being or works or whatever. That's very different to that type of relationship. I'm sure many of the ladies here tonight, if George Clooney were to walk down, uh, down Cromwell Street, would instantly say, I know who that is. I know that's George Clooney, and we can imagine something of the consequences of that, I'm sure. But that's very different. You know him because you've seen a photo of him, or you've perhaps seen him from a distance before. You know him because he is such a big celebrity in the world, in the world of entertainment as he belongs to. But that's very different from having a relationship with him where you can say, I know that person. And to to be a disciple of Jesus is exactly that. It's uh, uh, it belongs to that whole emphasis in the Bible of knowing. And the word know in the Bible is one of the most intimate words in the Bible. It describes even marital intimacy, where you find um, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. And you find the same word used in God's relationship with his people, and in Christ's relationship with his believing people, with his disciples, who are disciples inwardly in heart. He knows them and they know him. They have a living relationship with him. They follow him not just outwardly, but the whole direction and the bias of their heart is very much given to be followers of Christ in terms of obedience to him and following his teaching and his lordship. And uh, that's precisely what you find uh, in this, uh, this great statement of of um, declaration or confession of Peter in this passage as well, uh, where he comes to say, "You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then uh, as Jesus went on to uh, speak of where the origin of that confession was, Blessed are you, Simon Bayona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven, it's something that originate with God, the Father, who work in Peter 's heart revealing to him who Jesus really is. And that's, of course, at the heart of our passage to the identity of Jesus. And that brings in another element which... Um, It's not very much part of our study this evening, but discipleship involves trust. When it's the discipleship of your heart, and when your heart is engaged in being a disciple of Jesus and following him and being obedient to him, then that obviously means you trust in him. You trust your life to him, you trust your future and your past to him in the way that he is the forgiver of your sins or brings you to the Father so that you know him as your Father. Uh, And you cannot trust someone fully or properly without knowing him and without knowing something about him and who he is and what his identity is and what his character is and what the caliber of his life is. All of that is really built into uh, the kind of language that's used in the Bible about discipleship and as we go on studying the life of Peter, these things come more and more to the fore so that we'll put them to ourselves. Well, two things this evening from these verses. First of all, let's look at Christ's questions as they lead towards this confession of Peter's. So that's the second thing, Peter's confession. Christ's questions and then Peter's confession. It's very interesting how Jesus actually dealt with the disciples here and what led to Peter's confession here. When he came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and incidentally this is really uh, a great turning point in the whole account that Matthew gives of his account of Jesus uh, and of the ministry of Jesus leading up to his death on the cross and resurrection. There's a turning point here from this time forth. As you read in 21 there, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and the third day be raised. And Peter, of course, features in that too, and God willing we'll look at that aspect of Peter's life too. Uh, but there you find there's the turning point. There's the, if you like, the, the fulcrum or the, uh, the, the, the way in which the whole gospel of, of Matthew turns around this point. Everything before now leads to this, and everything afterwards uh, goes back to this great point where Jesus is confessed as uh, the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what is this question then? Verse he says... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then he said to them, But who do you say, you plural, that is, you disciples, you twelve, who do you say that I am? This is very interesting because it actually is, part of Christ's method here of drawing Peter and the twelve disciples to a consideration of who he is and who he, what his identity is. And then out comes this great confession. Of Peter, But these opinions of him were, at the time, circulating in these communities. Some people say, John the Baptist, the son of man is John the Baptist. And, of course, Jesus was referring to himself as the son of man, as we'll see in a moment, because not only did he say, who do people say the son of man is, he then said, who do you say that I am? So he's identifying himself with the son of man, and we'll see something of that in a minute. But um, this is how he actually brought these questions before them. Who do people say that I am? That's what he's saying to us tonight as well. Through the scriptures, through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit as tonight this gospel is proclaimed to you and as you're hearing this gospel proclaimed, that is really how he's addressing you in order to come more closely as we'll see to address your own personal relationship with him. He's asking, who do people say that I am? Study history, study the way that people even nowadays speak about Jesus Christ. What sort of opinions do people have of him? What sort of thing do other Religions make of this Jesus well some of them give him a prominent place but as we'll see only the Christianity that has Christ at its foundation really has a proper view of him as Christ the son of God the man in the street has his own ideas about Jesus philosophy has its own ideas about Jesus Different religions have their thoughts and their statements about Jesus. And all of that brings us to the stature of Jesus. The stature of Jesus, not only in the Bible, but throughout the whole course of history, since the time of the apostles at least, demands an answer to the question, well, who is he? Who is this person? What is his identity? As Rabbi Duncan Uh, famously said in a threefold dilemma if you like that he had uh, he said when you analyze the stature of Jesus the immensity of Jesus that comes across from the pages of the Bible and of the Gospels uh, as they deal with his life there are three possibilities either he's being deliberately evil to say things about himself that he knows are not true or else he's completely mad or mistaken saying things about himself, thinking they're true when they're actually not. Or else, he says, he is exactly who he claims to be. and That's what we're confronted with tonight. Who is this Jesus? Is he someone who's mistaken about his own identity? Is he somebody who deliberately set out to mislead people, knowing he wasn't anything of what he claimed to be? Or is he the Christ, the Son of God? Is he indeed who he claims to be? And if he is, then that has implications for us. And when I say, if he is, there is no doubt about it, is there? And that's why Duncan actually set out that uh, threefold question or dilemma about who Jesus was. Because he clearly wished to state that the Bible establishes that this is who he is. That this is who he knew he was and is. The Christ, the Son of the living God. But then he comes to the second question. That's, who do people say the Son of Man is? What sort of opinions do you find around you? Listen to what the world is saying. Listen to what other religions are saying. Fine, says Jesus, but who do you say that I am? Now you see he's drawing the net in, just like you find some people still to this day fishing with a specific kind of fishing net, especially when it's done manually and people have to physically haul that net to shore. It's cast out very widely, first of all, but then the net is drawn in and it becomes more narrow and the the focus becomes more narrowly upon Uh, That net as it gets smaller and smaller and captures the fish that are caught. That's what the gospel is doing. That's what Jesus is doing with you tonight, with me tonight. He's beginning by saying, who do you think, uh, what do do people think of Jesus? Who do people say Jesus is? But who do you say? And he's not just leaving it, the word is plural. There, Who do you plural say? You've got to actually narrow the focus down even more so to ourselves individually tonight. Who do you singular say that he is? What's his relevance to your life? How does he fit, if at all, into your way of life? Your hopes, your fears, your concerns, your questionings, Your perplexities, your future, your past, your sins, your relationship with God, with eternity. Where does Jesus feature in that in your case? That's really what we're confronted with, isn't it? It's not uh, to challenge us so that we'll just uh, find this just all too much and too harsh and too hard. And I hope that's not how it comes across. It's not intended to. It's so that this truth of God will really come by his blessing to melt our hearts so that if Jesus is not already situated there as the Lord of our life and if our discipleship is not yet the kind that has discipleship of heart, then tonight we will come to think seriously about this and ask ourselves, well, what is he to me? What have I made of him in my life? Where tonight do I stand in relation to Christ Christ? and his identity so Christ questions and they are so important they draw us to considering who he is in himself and then Simon Peter replied you are the Christ the son of the living God now there's a whole lot of theology in that confession, in that statement and there's no way we're going to be able to open up all the terms that are there Um, in in the short time we've got available. But this is really one of the great confessions of the Bible, one of the great statements and declarations of the Bible that brings before us something of the grandeur and the greatness of Christ. You are the Christ. That's the first thing, you are the Christ. What does the word Christ mean? Well, you, you know, I'm sure, that it means the Messiah, the Anointed One, and what does that actually indicate? What does it mean that he is the Messiah, the anointed one? What does that anointing mean? What does it amount to? What do we think of as we think of Christ as the anointed one, the Messiah? How, how is he anointed? How has he come to be anointed? What's the significance of that, anointment, of that anointing as, as we think of him in relation to ourselves? Well, for that, we've got to just step a little bit deeper into Uh, the Godhead into the Trinity. We'll see that for the second part of the confession to the the Son of the Living God. But you need to take them both together, of course. Um, And as the Christ, we think of him as the Anointed of God, as the Saviour of his people, because as we think of God and as we know God to be, triune, to have the, the three persons, as we give the name to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's our that's our religion. We have a Trinitarian religion. That's our that's our confession. That God is the Father. That God is the Son. That God is the Holy Spirit. And they're not three gods. They're one God together. These three persons. The mystery of the Godhead, but the reality of the Godhead. That's what's revealed to us. That's what we have to hold on to. It's part of our confession. It's part of our Uh, Christian faith and um, in doing that you know very well yourselves especially in the Gospel of John that Jesus spoke of himself as having been sent by the Father to a specific work in this world. In other words in the Trinity that God is there's an arrangement which came to be carried out in the process of history where the Father sent the Son into the world, and the same the Son willingly came, and he came by taking our human nature to himself, and in being born of a woman, and in coming to be really human in every respect of humanness, and in living that human life, all the way through to his death on the cross, and in accomplishing that death on the cross, and then coming to rise from the dead on the third day, as we find in the next passage, as he himself revealed to the disciples. And for all of that ministry, we learn from the Bible that Jesus was anointed, and anointed especially not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. Now that opens up a whole area that we can't actually go into uh, this evening, and that is that in terms of the human nature of the Son of God, there is a ministry of the Holy Spirit to him, to himself. He is endowed with the Holy Spirit. He's given certain gifts, if you like, or He is endowed in such a way that He became in our nature the Saviour who carried out these great tasks for our redemption. That's how God actually arranged and carried out the redemption of His people. He is anointed with that. Indeed, we sang something of that in Psalm 45. Um, where uh, we we sang together the way in which he is prophesied about in that psalm um, as one who has come to be uh, God's anointed one. Psalm 72 has similar uh, sentiments to that, but here he is addressing these verses to the king. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. And then he's a praise, in a sense, seeking gird your, th- your sword on your thigh. This warrior Jesus, this endowed warrior of God, endowed with the Spirit of God, and in this splendid imagery that you have there of the warrior riding out in his majesty to bring people into subjection to himself, to form his kingdom, to actually bring about uh, people who will be his disciples. Ride out victoriously. And then, of course, uh, verse 6, which we can relate to the Son of God, as we'll come to in a minute. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And in the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, right at the start of the epistle, it's obvious that it is Jesus, it's the Son that that is speaking about. So there's the Christ, the anointed one. He's anointed with the Spirit. He's given the Spirit. You remember at his baptism, the beginning of his public ministry, that the spirit in the form of a dove descended upon him and in John's words and they're very important that he saw this and it remained on him. It didn't just come and then go. It remained on him. He was endowed with the spirit and very interestingly I just mentioned this in passing I think we've referred to it before but in Luke chapter 4 you have an arrangement um, of Christ's baptism and then Subsequently, his, um, his, um, a, his temptation by the devil uh, in the wilderness. Uh, he was baptized, we read there. Uh, Jesus uh, also uh, was praying, as he was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And chapter 4 begins, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit into the desert and, uh, and, and afterwards, but you see here, he was full of the Holy Spirit returning from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to confront Satan or to have Satan really brought before them is really what you think about. And when that was finished, he came to Nazareth. He returned in this, the power of the Spirit to Galilee, And then he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And what did he do? He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then you read, And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the words of grace that were coming from his mouth. And then you read incredibly, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? You see, there's a very dynamic point being made there. Here is Jesus in Luke's presentation of it, just fitting in with what Peter is confessing here as Jesus the Christ, the Anointed One. He has that reference to Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit, coming back in the power of the Spirit, confronting the devil in the power of the Spirit, coming back in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, taking up the passage in the Bible in the scroll of Isaiah where this passage was uh, especially referring to him as the Spirit-endowed one. And yet they don't accept him. you see, that tonight is important to you and to me. The fact that we know that this is who Jesus is, that the Bible demonstrates that this Christ is the anointed one, that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit for the redemption of his people, does not automatically mean that you and I instantly say, great news, I'll follow him, I'll give my heart to him. Who do you say that he is? This is what it's saying about him. He is the Christ. He's the anointed of God. He's the specially endowed Savior of sinners. He has the Spirit in order to carry through his ministry. And tonight he's saying, You know all this. You're privileged to know all this. You're privileged above most people in the world today to know this teaching from the Word of God. But is there anyone here who doesn't yet know him? Know him for themselves. Whose heart is not yet the heart of discipleship, even if outwardly you are indeed following him to the measure you are. You are the Christ. Are you convinced of this? Or yourself this evening. But then he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that brings up um, this title that's given to him, the Son of God, uh, or as Peter has it here, the Son of the living God, just to make it absolutely clear that it is God, the only true God that he's speaking of. And it raises, of course, the uh, question of what is what is meant by this title, the Son of God or Jesus. We're not, again, at all going to have time to do much with that, except to notice that um, it's alongside the Son of Man here, as he's put in the first two questions. Who, um, who, who is the Son of Man? And some people think that the Son of Man describes Jesus in terms of his humanity, whereas the Son of God describes him in terms of his divine nature or his deity. Uh, it's not entirely wrong, but... If you go to where the Son of Man appears in the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel in chapter 7, you'll find that it's actually a divine figure, not a human one, that's brought to the Ancient of Days and who is given a kingdom and authority. It's Jesus, not merely in terms of his human nature, but Jesus, the endowed Son of God in our nature, the Messiah, the God-Man, And you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, there are places in the Bible we could refer to a number. I'm just going to refer back to one of them in Matthew's Gospel, seeing we're in Matthew's Gospel, where the Son of God is very clearly set forth as a title that sets out the deity or the Godhood of Jesus. Uh, Matthew 11 has a wonderful passage uh, that leads into his Great invitation, though it could be an imperative as well as an invitation come to me, all you who labour. And Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Incidentally, there are actually uh, study sheets on these studies that we have in in, uh, Peter's life. You can find them online on the website. I know some are using them in Bible study groups, and um, I'll make one available uh, as well on this study this evening. So there'll be more detail of these things that we haven't time to go into. You can follow that out in in the study notes for yourselves. Because they bring us into, once again, the stature, the greatness, the depth that you find in the person of Jesus as the Son of God, as divine, along with his humanness. And what it's really saying to us is actually only God the Father really knows the Son in the entirety of what he is and who he is as the Son of God. And yet the Son makes this known to those that he chooses to make it known to. And what Peter is told here is that the Father has revealed this to him. In other words, there is such a grandeur, such an immensity to Jesus that the Son of God describes him as God. He is in every sense God. In every sense in which the Father is God. And you go back to chapter 14 and you read that Verse 33, that they worshipped him. We had a look at something of those passages where he came across the sea and where he encouraged them, take heart at his eye, be not afraid. We mentioned at that time the greatness of that I, it is I. Um, but um, then uh, Peter got out of the boat and as we saw, went to Jesus and Jesus rescued him from sinking. Verse 33, those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. If Jesus is not divine, if he's not God, not only are we wrong to worship him tonight, but we would be committing a gross sin in worshipping someone who is not actually God, who alone is to be worshipped. We have no embarrassment or sense of guilt in worshipping Jesus as we worship the Father and worship the Spirit, as we worship God, because he is the Son of God, he is God. Is divine. And the greatness of his deity fills this confession of Peter. You are the Christ, you are the anointed one, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And, uh, you know, some people would actually say, and you'll find some species of theology saying this, that actually Christ is not pre existent, he's not divine. Uh, this is something, the Son of God, a title that was given to him or invented by the early church or something like that, so that um, as his ministry was reflected on, um, this is something that came to be a doctrine of the church, that um, as the Messiah, as the Christ, as one who was endowed indeed by God, but not God, as these versions of uh, theology will say to you, so, also, they tacked on the fact that he's the son of God because God endowed him and being a very special person, then he, if you like, adopted him into this title of sonship. In actual fact, it's the other way around. The Christhood of Jesus, if you like, his messiahship, is actually founded on his sonship, his deity as the Son of God, is foundational to his Christhood as the anointed Messiah, in our nature, the Son incarnate. And the, the statement, Jesus is God, is fundamental to our Christianity. It's fundamental to the Christian faith. It's one of the things throughout history that God's faithful people have sought uh, to insist upon and to write against all kinds of thoughts and statements and articles and works that would deny the deity of Christ. Of course, humanity is of critical importance to us as well, but that's not before us at the moment other than it's an aspect of Christ as he is there before Peter. You are the Christ Christ. The Son of the Living God. But what's the point of all that? Are we just studying this tonight with a view to just filling our minds with theology? Good thing though that is. Is this just so that we'll know something more about Jesus and who he is and his identity and have something more of an appreciation of what it means that he is the Christ, that he's the Son of God? Is it just so that we will be able to say to other people, well, you know, this is something that I learned a bit more about on Sunday when the minister was preaching on this text. What is the point to the Bible telling us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Well, the answer to that is actually in John's gospel and in chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, because this is what it says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why we're looking tonight at Peter's confession and statement. It's not just an academic exercise, though it has elements of that in it. It's not just a theological exercise, good though that is. It's an exercise in terms of our discipleship and in terms of who Jesus is to us. It's an exercise in examining ourselves tonight as to whether we, in believing in his name, have indeed come. To the possession of life, eternal life indeed, in Jesus Christ. That's going back to the invitation in John in, in Matthew eleven. Having said something about himself, about who he is, about his relationship to the Father, about the immensity of himself as a person, then he says. Now you come to me, all you who are laden and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Where are you going to find your rest? We looked last time at Peter saying to Jesus, To whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Yes, but who are you? You come to rest, and you find rest truly only in this great person, in this immense, Divine as well as human, Jesus. Come to me, he says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. In other words, become my disciple. Take my yoke of teaching upon you. Give your heart to me. Obey me. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It doesn't mean that we will not find the way challenging but it does mean however challenging it will be, we have someone who undergirds our life, who will never forsake us, whose greatness is the greatness of deity, as well as his human understanding. Now then, who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we give thanks that this gospel is your gospel, that it is your good news to us, that you express yourself through it right through to our present day, that you will continue to express yourself and reveal yourself through this word right through to the end of time. Oh Lord, we thank you tonight that you have dressed ourselves, that you have brought us to consider our relationship to you as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Lord, we pray that as we know these truths sinking into our hearts, we pray that you would claim our hearts for yourself. Lord, may our discipleship be very real, very internal, as well as outward, and may indeed be what we are outwardly be, a reflection of what we are in our hearts that we are yours, that you are ours, that we delight to be your people. Accept our worship now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our final psalm and conclusion tonight is uh, Psalm 89. Again in the uh, Scottish Psalter, page 345, Psalm 89, these well-known words speak about the privilege and the blessing of being a people who know this joyful sound who are the people of God. Oh, greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that know in brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. Psalm 89 on page 345, singing 15 to 18 on the tune of Covenanter. So greatly blessed the people are. I didn't see those of you who are upstairs this morning I will go again to the main door uh, this evening now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore Amen